So a little background. Um, Rory has, he did emergency medicine, did a chief year in emergency medicine, was on, uh, did a uh, critical kind of a resuscitation uh, fellowship um, up in at Stony Brook. Uh, came down here, was on faculty in emergency medicine before uh, joining our fellowship here. Um, he's been very accomplished. He's over 30 PubMed indexed articles um, and uh, is really at, at the cutting edge of a lot of interesting topics within uh, critical care. And this one um, in particular is uh, one of those and that I think is very relevant to how we practice medicine. So thank you, Rory. Thanks. Is, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, so actually, when I uh, first convinced, is it on? Yeah. yeah. Okay. When I uh, first convinced Dr. McCurdy to interview me, I guess it's about three years ago now. Uh, when we were scheduling the interview, he actually convinced me to to give a lecture here back then on interview day, and I probably should have known what I was getting into then, but. Three and a half years later, I'm back. Um, so thanks for having me. Um, and so what we're going to kind of talk to today, to talk about today, is kind of one of the things I've been working on for the last two years in fellowship. Um, a lot of it is physiological based. I'll let you know when there's evidence and when we're kind of working in an evidence-free though. But I think it's kind of interesting, and we kind of use it as a vaulting point to kind of go through Starling and Guyton physiology. Um, and I'll try to keep the physiology components as basic as, as we can. Um, so disclosures, financially I have none. Intellectually I blog for this site called EM Nerve where I kind of rant angrily about topics in emergency medicine and critical care. Um, okay, so let's move on to a case. Um, so you have a 57-year-old woman who is transferred into your ICU for influenza pneumonia. She was in septic shock, presented to an outside hospital, got broad-spectrum antibiotics, a pretty aggressive um, resuscitation, and uh, started developing ARDS, and came to your ICU in ARDS. She got there the night before. Um, she was deemed to be fluid responsive, got about two liters of fluid, um, was in shock on pressors, and when you see her in the morning, you're having difficulty ventilating her, um, having high peeps, high FiO2s, um, you are now on two pressors with maps barely hanging around 65, and she hasn't made any urine since she's got there. Right. That's her x-ray. And so what do you do with this patient? And this is a scenario we see daily, right? Every single day, you've got a patient with severe renal failure, the lungs are wet, they have an AKI, and they're in shock, and you want to know, should I give them more fluid? Should I start to diurese them? And we ask this question all the time. And we kind of stick our finger in the air and just guess at which way we're going to go. So we're going to talk about IV fluids and how we determine when and when not to give them for kind of the rest of this talk. Um, and we have pretty good data that the more fluid patients get in the ICU, the worse they do. Um, and it's a little unclear what this means, right? Are, are the fluids themselves causing injury? Are the patients just so sick, the ones that get more fluids happen to be the ones that sick and happen to do worse? Um, but there is a decent amount of randomized control trial data that suggests aggressive resuscitations harm patients, especially patients with sepsis, right? Um, most notably is the FEAST trial, which was published in the New England Journal in 2011. And this looked at children in Africa presenting with septic shock, right? And they were randomized to get a fluid bolus 
plus infusion or just simply infusion of fluid slowly. And if you actually look at some of their subpopulations, when they went back and asked the clinicians who they thought did better before they saw the results, all the clinicians said to patients the fluid bolus did better. They perked up, their blood pressure got better quicker, their shock resolved, they started eating and talking and interacting. They just died more frequently. Right? So you could say, well, this is sub-Saharan Africa, this is children, this doesn't really apply to me at all. Um, and you can look at the Andrews trial, which was published in JAMA a couple years ago now, that looked at adults in Africa presenting in septic shock and compared an aggressive, goal-directed resuscitation to, we're just going to give them a slow infusion, antibiotic source control. And again, the patients who got the aggressive resuscitation cleared their lactate faster, their shock improved quicker, they just got intubated and died more frequently. Right? But again, this is in Africa. This doesn't apply to what our patients today. Well, we can look in the Netherlands, where they did the classic trial, where they randomized patients post-resuscitation, but still in septic shock, to either a fluid liberal strategy, which is essentially what we do nowadays if they're tachycardic, or they seem to be fluid responsive, or they're not making enough urine, or whatever we deem we give them a fluid bolus, versus they're not going to get a fluid bolus unless they're modeled above the knee, they have a rising lactate about 4, their MAP is under 50, or they haven't made urine in 24 hours. And just like we saw in the last trials, the patients in the liberal group cleared their lactate quicker, improved their blood pressure, they just stayed on the vent longer, they had more renal failure, and they died more often. Right? And so maybe the Netherlands don't apply to our population. But you can actually look back to the, the FACT trial, which was published here. Right? These are ARDS patients who almost all of them were in septic shock um, and were randomized to a liberal or restrictive strategy. And I think this one we're all familiar with, that the patients in the restrictive strategy did far better. And the interesting part about this trial is if you look back at the Semler reanalysis who looked at which patients actually benefited, it wasn't the ones who got aggressive diuresis, but it was the ones who didn't get fluid in the first place. And so the concept is put it, taking it off is not the same as not putting it in in the first place. Right? And then finally, this was published this year as a drometer shock trial, which randomized you to two resuscitation strategies, one using lactate to guide it and one using capillary refill time. And they found that the lactate group got a far more aggressive resuscitation, more fluid, more pressors, more inotropes. And again, they just died more frequently than the other group, right? Um, but we have pretty good data, too. If you under-resuscitate patients, they also do well or do poorly. So the question is, where are we and how do we decide how much fluid to give and when to stop, right? And most of the time, it's a corn flip. We just don't know. But it has brought up the concept of fluid responsiveness. And so this is the concept that you give fluid to patients when that fluid bolus is thought to increase their cardiac output and augment tissue perfusion. Right? And that's the simple concept. And this is as far as we're going to get in the Starling curve. But the idea is you give a patient a preload, you better align your cardiomyocytes, you increase cardiac output and oxygen delivery to tissue. But it's funny, we've kind of known that this doesn't work for a very long time. If you go back and look at all the SWAN data, looking at inseptic patients, they actually tried to do this, and they never found a benefit. And instead of saying, well, maybe the strategy is flawed, we said the SWAN was flawed. And since then, we've found all these other methods of finding non-invasive cardiac output monitoring to imitate the SWAN, when no SWAN study has ever shown that using these kind of hemodynamic strategy improves patient outcomes. So maybe the strategy is flawed, and why? 
So all of you, where are you on the stroke on the on the Starling curve right now? Just now, if we just did it and, and, and analyze you, we all exist hopefully on the steep portion of our Starling curve. We're all volume responsive. So by driving people up to the flat portion of this curve, giving them fluid until they're no longer fluid responsive is basically iatrogenic fluid overload. Right? So we are causing fluid overload by definition by trying to eliminate fluid responsiveness. The other question is how long does it last in a septic patient? So they've looked at this pretty clearly. When you give a septic patient a fluid bolus, how long does that augmentation in cardiac output actually last? So it's somewhere around 30, 15 to 30 minutes. Right? And then it goes away, and you're back to where you were. So what have you really accomplished for these transient increases in cardiac output, right? And so why does this happen in sepsis? What is the reason? Why are we losing this augmentation? So here's your stalling forces, right? We've all learned this a long time ago. But these are essentially the forces that guide whether fluid stays in the vessel or goes into the, the, the interstitial spaces, right? And you have the hydrostatic forces in the vessel, which are forcing blood out, forcing fluid out, versus the hydrostatic forces of the interstitium that are trying to push blood back in. And you've got the osmotic forces in the vessel trying to hold blood in versus the osmotic forces in the interstitium, right? And the last thing we have here is the actual permeability of the blood vessels themselves. And this is what's gone wrong in sepsis, right? We just have very leaky vessels. So even if you have normal hydrostatic and osmotic forces, you are going to third space more volume just simply by the permeability of the vessels themselves. So if you put this in a graph form, it looks something like this. The dotted line are the, the forces that are trying to keep blood or fluid in the vascular space. And this is the hydrostatic pressure of the vessel. So in the arterial, it's high, and you start to have fluid extravasating into the third space. And in the venule, it's low and it's supposed to be reabsorbed, right? This is the classic theory of stalling forces. What's the problem with this theory? When they've actually looked at it, this is not how it actually happens, right? So when they actually came up with it, the actual um, ability to measure it, it looks more like something like this. You never reabsorb on the venous side. You're always third spacing fluid throughout the, the vascular system completely. So you never have reabsorption. More, it looks more something like this. Right? You have more third spacing in the arterial side, but at the venous side, it never actually stops. Right? And so now this whole process is far more exaggerated in sepsis. Right? So what happens when you give a fluid bolus? <coughs> yeah, your MAP increases. You increase hydrostatic forces, and you more quickly third space that fluid. Right? And in fact, they've done studies looking at the speed at which you give a fluid bolus. 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, four hours, and how long does the increase in your cardiac output last compared to how quickly you give the fluid? And they found the longer you give the fluid over, the longer your cardiac output lasts, the less you actually third space, right? And so this kind of brings up the concept of damage control resuscitation, which we're all very familiar with in trauma, but looking at it in the, from sepsis too, meaning if I'm going to aggressively resuscitate people, increase their MAP, I'm going to cause more third spacing, more edema, and more harm, right? And that's a theory, but it does bear out in all the trials we looked at before, right? FEAST, the Andrews trial, all showed that if you gave fluid slowly over time, the patient had less edema, less time on the vent, and died less often, all right? So that goes from taking this concept of fluid responsiveness and changing it to something called fluid tolerance.
or this idea of looking for signs that giving more fluid is going to harm the patient. And you can look at this in a couple places. You can look in the heart, right? See how the cardiac function is, right and left side. You can look at the lungs. If there's edema in the lungs, fluid in the lungs, and you look, look in the abdomen for abdominal compartment syndrome. Or, for what we're going to talk about today, is you look at the veins in the venous side and looking for signs of venous congestion. So who knows what, who Arthur Guyton is? One. So Arthur Guyton was a physiologist. He actually wanted to be a cardiac surgeon, but because of some paralysis, paralysis due to polio, he wasn't able to, I think he, in his final year of residency, wasn't able to finish. And so he became a physiologist, and he was the one that really graphed out the physiology of venous return, and we now call it Guyton physiology, right? And so how many of you here know how we actually get blood back to the heart? I think we all have the concept of how blood gets out to the tissues, but I don't think everyone fully understands venous return and what actually happens. So you essentially have what's called the mean systemic pressure, or the mean systemic filling pressure, and this is, it's kind of a obscure concept that the pressure in your, the venous tone in your system is basically determined by this, the compliance or the size of the vessels themselves and the amount of fluid in them. So if you think about it like a waterbed, and as you start to, if you fill a waterbed com completely up with fluid, right, and you've got a full waterbed, and then you unplug the hole, there's a bunch of water that's going to pour out of it and make a mess on your bedroom floor, right? But at some point, it's going to stop pouring out, and there's still going to be some residual water left in the waterbed as the tone of the bed itself has basically pushed all the fluid it could out. That's kind of what mean systemic filling pressure is. It's this idea of the vascular tone of the, ve the venous vessels themselves and the amount of fluid you have in them determine the pressure that drives the blood back to the heart. And that's com competing with the right atrial pressure. Right? And the right, the right ventricle is kind of fascinating. The anatomy of the right ventricle is built that it's built to respond to, to basically taking a big, large amount of volume in, and it changes its shape to keep its pressure as low as possible so you continue to get venous return. In fact, if it was like the right ventricle, or the left ventricle, that would, it wouldn't be able to do that, right? Because the left atrial pressures would increase much higher, and you would decrease venous return because of that. So another way of looking at this is this graph here. I made these images myself, they're very fancy. But you can see there's what's called the stress and unstressed volume. So the unstressed volume is kind of what we talked about in that waterbed as all the water comes out and whatever's left in the system there, right? And the stress volume is the actual volume of blood that's being driven back to the heart. And what happens in sepsis? Yeah, there is some fluid loss, but there's also just you lose venous tone, right? So you take a lot of the stress volume, what we have normally, and basically stick it into the unstressed volume, right? Because of just the loss of venous tone, right? And what do we typically do when that happens? The traditional sense was to give them a whole bunch of fluid and refill up that space, right? But what's another option you could do? Yeah, how would you do that? Squeezy things in the legs. <laughs> you squeeze these things in the legs. But do we have a systemic squeezy thing of the legs that we could use? Yeah, you can use a presser, right? Yeah. So there's actually a, a decent amount of evidence saying the first thing that pressers do is to constrict the veins or increase venous tone before they actually work on the arteries. So there's a lot of work now looking at low-dose pressers in early sepsis 
to take a bunch of your unstressed volume and re-recruit it and turn it into stress volume, reducing the amount of fluids you have to give, reducing the third spacing, so on and so forth. So that's kind of what the mean systemic pressure is. How do you measure it? You've got to stop the heart, right? So the mean systemic pressure is basically the pressure in the vascular system with no blood flow. Right? I don't know about you, but I found that's kind of doesn't work well when you try to treat septic patients. Stopping the heart is not always a good idea. Um, so it's a little difficult uh, actual thing to measure. Um, but I'm going to argue you can actually get a sense of what it is by looking at a CVP waveform. <coughs> right? And so CVPs have kind of lost their notoriety at this point, right? Based off lots and lots of data showing that they don't predict fluid responsiveness. But I'm going to argue we probably don't need to predict fluid responsiveness. What we're looking here is fluid tolerance, right? So if you look at the CVP waveform, you can see the A, C, X, V, and Y, right? So the A is essentially starting during the atrial contraction, right? The atrium contracts, right atrial pressure increases, and you get that little spike in pressure, right? And then as the right atrium starts to relax, the ventricle starts to contract right here. Tricuspid valve kind of bulges into the right atrium for a second, and you get that spike of your C wave. And then the right atrium completely relaxes, and the pressure in the right atrium drops. Right? And so you get that drop in pressure, and blood pours into it. And as blood pours into it, the right atrium fills, and you get an increase in pressure from filling. At some point, the tricuspid valve opens, blood starts to pour out again, and again you get a drop in pressure. Right? And so that's just a pretty classic change in pressure of your right atrium. But let's look at it from this kind of guidance physiology point. So we've got the upstream pressure. As we said, that's the mean systemic filling pressure. And we've got the right atrial pressure. right? And if we look at them like that, here's what you see. During your atrial contraction, you get a little retrograde flow away from the heart. right? And then as that right atrium relaxes, during systole of the right ventricle, you have a filling. right? So the most of your filling occurs in right ventricular systole, and then you have a second, smaller area of filling during right ventricular diastole. That's normal flow, right? So if we look at a CVP waveform during worsening heart failure, it looks something like this. And if you do the same exercise, you see as it worsens, you have more and more backflow into the venous system, and less forward flow. And this is what we call venous excess. Right. Now, we could put a CVP in, blow it up on the screen, and kind of look at it on every patient. But who wants to do that? <laughs> you and all the emergency medicine residents who want to get in central lines, right? Um, but the good news is we have another way of doing it. We can actually do this with ultrasound, which is really cool. And that's kind of what the bulk of the rest of this talk is, is how do we look at venous flow and venous physiology or guidance physiology using ultrasound? And that's what I think is really cool. So um, just logistically, what we're going to look at is the hepatic portal and renal veins and look at the renal flow and how they change with venous congestion. And this is done in the right upper quadrant, so anterior axillary line, scanning posteriorly, um, and we'll kind of go through what you see. So when you put the probe on anterior axillary, you get something like this. Do you guys, well, that's a black screen. You get something like this. Uh, you guys know what that is right there? Does that feed into the IVC? That does feed into the IVC. Yeah, that's the 
So that's, that's one of your major hepatic veins, right? It's your first hepatic vein. And we'll see, you can tell the difference between hepatic and portal by the outline of the vessel. You see how there's no real wall here? Thin walled black vessel. That's your hepatic vein. It's the most anterior located in this. And as you scan posterior, oh, sorry. We can actually look at it here real fast. So this is it in view, right? You can see it pulsating, right? So flow in the hepatic vein goes away from the probe or back to the heart. So it's primarily blue. Right, you see every once in a while you got that red pulse. That's your atrial kick. So that's normal Doppler, color Doppler of an hepatic vein. We'll go more into this in detail in a sec. Here's your portal vein. So you're now scanning more posteriorly. You'll see your portal vein. You can tell it's a portal because it's got this kind of hyperechoic wall here. And you see how it's red? So portal vein flows back to the probe or away from the heart. And then your renal veins, which we're going to look at, right? And so... If you do the scan real fast, you can see I'm here most anteriorly. That was my hepatic. There's my portal right there. And as I keep scanning backwards, there's my kidney. Right? And so it's really, really simple. It's much easier than looking at the heart, right? You just kind of put it here, the portal and the hepatic are almost always there to find. Sometimes the renal can be a little more difficult. But with practice, they're all pretty easy. And then one final slide to differentiate portal and hepatic. Here's a portal vein. You see how it doesn't really have a wall? Right? Whereas you look at these guys all in here, see the thick walls around them? Those are portal vessels, right? And the more you do this, the easier it becomes. So let's start with hepatic. Right? So as we said, there's your big primary, your first hepatic vein. That's your IVC right there. And those are your hepatic vessels falling into it. Right? So here's a normal hepatic waveform down here. That looks like normal flow. So if we blow that up, and compare it to this, look what you see. There's your A wave, there's your systolic filling, and there's your diastolic filling. It's exactly the same as a CVP tracing, which is really, really cool, right? A, S, D. And what's really cool about it, just like what we saw with right heart failure on the CVB tracing, that's how the hepatic vein changes with congestion, right? So if you look at this, there's your A wave, there's your S, and there's your D. What happened? The S got smaller and the D got bigger, right? So what's happening there? So because there's venous excess, there's more fluid in the venous side, as you start filling up the right atrium, right atrial pressure equalizes mean systemic pressure earlier on. So you have less filling during systole, and you have to wait till the tricuspid valve opens, some of that blood empties, to increase your filling, right? So the first thing you see with venous congestion in your hepatic vein is your S wave gets smaller and your D wave gets bigger. We call it S to D <coughs> inversion or reversal, right? Eventually, when it gets really bad, the S and the A wave fuse, just like you saw on that CVP waveform. So you get this big S A wave, and then you have diastolic wave. And you've got this kind of biphasic waveform there. That's severe congestion in the hepatic vein. And so if you look at them, they look something like this. This um, diagram's a little confusing because they decided to put the atrial kick on the back, but it would look the same up here. You have an S that's big and a D that's small. That's normal flow, just like the CVP waveform. And then what you see is over time, the S gets smaller and smaller, and eventually it goes the wrong direction with more and more venous stasis. Make sense so far? Can you 
looked at are, uh, can you comment on the effects of the degree of positive pressure ventilation? So we haven't, we're, we're, we're doing a study here now. No one's actually looked at it um, in, through, in research yet. I can tell you anecdotally, I find positive pressure has no effect on actual flows themselves. You'll see people on huge amounts of positive pressure, it change, doesn't change flows at all. Um, their CVPs are like 12 or 15, but the venous flows are completely normal. Whereas other people, you can have CVPs of four, and they actually have tons of venous congestion. Which is different than so that's interesting. Yeah. So I mean, so this is one of the things I've been thinking about, right? Because if you want to augment mean systemic filling pressure with pressors, right? Technically, your your peak flows, your centimeters per second, your peak flows, as you increase mean systemic pressure, those should be augmented. And so you can you can basically say, is I'm going to give pressors until my mean systemic pressure increases maximally. And then I basically tapped out what I can do with pressors on my venous side. Um, there's absolutely no data on that. Some of my ultrasound geek friends said it doesn't quite work um, because you're also changing the diameter of the vessel. And so if you can measure the diameter of the vessel and the VTI of the, the flow, then you can get somewhere about there. But this theoretically could do something, but no one's ever looked at it. No. All right, so now we look at the portal. I think the portal is one of the easiest to capture and the easiest to interpret. Um, most of the data, which we'll kind of talk about later, show it's probably the most sensitive and specific for, for venous congestion as well. Um, so like we said before, there's your portal. It's flow towards the probe, so it's red. And you can see it's got this kind of hyperechoic outline. And this is normal ven ven or portal flow, right? It's this monophasic wave, right? It just it's very slow. It's somewhere about uh, 20 centimeters per second normally. It can go up and down from there. But what happens when you start seeing signs of venous excess is this. You start having this pulsatility to the wave itself, right? And just like the hepatic, these troughs come during systole, right? So you have a systolic trough, a diastolic increase, and back and forth, right? And as it gets worse, it does something like that. Right? So you have pretty severe troughs and peaks, right? And that artery behind it, that's the hepatic artery that we're kind of catching, you can or you, do, you don't have to catch it, but it is nice because you can see where mechanical systole is, right? And you can see that the, the venous waveform is dropping out at each one of those. And then eventually, you get backflow through the portal vein, which is severe, severe congestion, right? So again, it looks something like that, continuous, pulsatile to and fro flow. There's something called the portal pulsatility index, which is you measure the peak minus the trough over the peak. And it's been said that somewhere around 50%, other studies have looked at 30%, is the areas that look at, that basically mark you for venous congestion and have been predictive for renal failure, right, right heart failure, so on and so forth. Um, I think it's a continuum. If you use this a lot, you start to start see people as you're resuscitating them become more and more pulsatile. I don't think you definitely need to measure. In fact, we're looking at what's the point where you can visually call it. Um, I think it's going to be somewhere around 20 or 30 percent where you can actually start visual calling pulsatility. All right, and finally, the renal. This is probably the most technically difficult to obtain. Um, 
but with practice, it's really not so hard. So again, you're basically starting anterior, getting your paddock. As you scan posterior, you have your portal, and a little farther posterior, you get your renal, right? And this is what you see. You throw color Doppler over the, the vein itself, and you'll see these kind of sparkling. Those are the interarcuate artery and vein. They run together. And you're going to find one of those you like, and you're going to throw your, your pulse wave marker over it, right? And you get something like this. So the nice thing about the renal is you get the renal artery up top and the renal vein below it. Now, people have tried to do so many things with the renal artery to try to see if blood flow to the kidney is adequate, and they use the renal resistive index, which is essentially looking at the systolic versus diastolic pressures or flows to the renal artery, and they've all failed to show any benefit. And it's probably because a lot of people come in with bad renal resistive indexes anyway. Um, but the vein is actually kind of helpful. And you can see here, this is a normal venous waveform, right? So you see during systole, you get a little increase in flow. Is that happening a lot? I'm not looking back. <laughs> during diastole, it goes down again and increase. Normal kind of pulsatile going away from the marker, right? Now, what happens as you get more congested is something like this. So you get a biphasic waveform where you have a, a, a venous flow Flow stops, and then you get a diastolic flow, right? And just like the hepatic vein, systolic is bigger than diastolic. Systolic is bigger than diastolic. As the congestion gets worse, just like the hepatic vein, systolic flow goes down, right? And so you can see you're losing systolic flow, and diastolic flow is getting bigger, right? And then with severe, severe congestion, you lose systolic flow completely, and all you have is diastolic flow. So if you look at it like this, you have the continuous flow we looked at. Some people try to talk about pulsatile flow. I don't think it's very helpful. In fact, the data tells you that you probably don't have any predictability from pulsatile from normal. But as you start to see biphasic flow, systolic greater than diastolic, then systolic smaller than diastolic, and eventually you lose systolic completely and become monophasic flow. This is very congestive <coughs> for AKI and, and um, worsening kidney function. All right, so if we look at them all together, you can see renal up here, hepatic and portal, normal, and then worsening congestion, just like we talked about. Make sense so far? So what about the evidence? So there's not a lot of evidence here. This is actually, we're just starting to build it. Most of them is out of a group in Montreal who are cardiac anesthetists and cardiac uh, intensivists um, who look at it in heart, in, um, heart uh surgical patients, so mostly cabbages. Um, but there is a group who've looked at it in heart failure and show that portal vein pulsatility and renal vein pulsatility directly correlate with right atrial pressures. But we can just measure right atrial pressure, so who cares? But they've also looked at it in, heart, in cardiac patients showing that portal vein and renal vein pulsatility are signs of congestions cause or predict right ventricular failure, AKI, <coughs> They actually show that they also correlate with delirium, making you wonder if some of delirium has got to do with venous congestion. Um, and now here, we're trying to look at it in septic patients in the ICU to see how it predicts signs of over-resuscitation. So finally, one of the things you want to think about is not using this in isolation. You want to phenotype your signs of fluid intolerance, right? And you can do that. by looking at the heart, 
seeing what the right left ventricular function is, looking at the TAPSI, see what the right ventricular function is. You can do look at it by looking at the vasculature. Do we have leaky vasculature? So patients with the flu or influenza and they have bee lines everywhere, that's a sign of, of fluid intolerance, right? They're more likely in a third space that fluid into the lungs and do worse. Um, another example, pancreatitis, right? If you actually try to do venous ultrasound on pancreatitis, they will always be decongested, no matter how much fluid you give them. But they third space it into their belly, into their lungs. But every time I've put the, pro I've put the probe on and looked at venous insufficiency, I've never actually seen any venous congestion. They always look completely decongested. Um, and then, like what we talked about today, is you can look for signs of venous congestion itself, right, and venous excess. Um, a last little comment on this, which I think is really interesting, and there's not a lot of data on it yet, but... How do you get this fluid back? If this is normal state, we're always third spacing this fluid, even all of us right now. And if we're not reabsorbing it in the venous side, where does it go back in? The lymph. Right? So it all gets reabsorbed in the lymph, which is a much slower system than reabsorbing it through the venous side. But where is it draining to? What's the back pressure on the lymph? It's the venous side, right? Which is fascinating, right? So until you decompress the venous side, you will not get any reabsorption of that edema. I've actually looked to see if we could do like TEE of the thoracic duct and actually see venous or lymphatic flow, which if anyone knows how, you can help me, but I haven't figured out a way to do it yet. Um, but it's really interesting. Until you start to decompress the, the venous side, you probably won't get much lymph reabsorption of all this third-place fluid. And we see this clinically all the time, right? Until you actually start to diurese them and offload that right side and that venous side, you really don't see any reabsorption in the soft tissue. All right, so let's go back to our case. Um, so she came to the ICU, like we said, in the morning, here's her scans, right? So that's her hepatic vein. So what do you guys see there? You see a black screen. What do you guys see there? Yeah, so right, there's your A wave, there's your systolic, there's your diastolic. You can see the systolic's really small, diastolic's really big. There's some signs of, of congestion, right? This is her portal. That looks pretty biphasic, right? That's a bad portal vein. That's right? a pretty significant phasicity to our portal vein. And this is her renal vein, right? So biphasic, systolic, less than diastolic. So we hooked her up to our magic CRT machine. Despite being on pressors and in shock, we started pulling fluid on her. She got about two to three liters off the first day. And this is what her images looked like. So you can see there's still, there's still uh, systolic less than diastolic, but you can see they're starting to even out. And even here, you can see them starting to get more close to normal. This is her portal vein. Right? So it's still phasic, but it's certainly not going in the wrong direction. And here's her renal vein. So again, she's still biphasic, but you can see at points, systolic is starting to look the same size as diastolic. So another three to four liters off. And this is her hepatic. So hepatic, when it's really good, it's almost hard to interpret. It's just these massive flows in the negative direction. But that's a completely normal hepatic vein right there. It's just... This is her portal. Again, completely normal. This is where she pulled it off from respiratory variation. She pulled the, the, the marker off the, the vein. But that's normal portal vein. And here's her renal vein. Completely normal. Right? So one more summary of looking at the actual images. You can see coming from continuous, non-congested flow to becoming more, more um, venously congested to when you basically have 
flow flowing in the wrong direction through all your veins. All right, so that is kind of summing this up. I just want to thank a couple people. One is uh, Felipe Rolla, who is an intensivist out of Montreal, who basically is the one who showed me how to do this um, and has been doing a lot of the work on pushing this forward. Uh, and the other is Dr. Murthy for putting up with all my shenanigans in the ultrasound lab and agreeing to add this to the free. Um, all right, questions? The portal vein flow just it flows in the opposite direction to the hepatic vein flow and then right. drains into the hepatic system later on. The nephrologist can actually. I actually have a question about the other ultrasound markers of volume responsibility, mm -hmm. the stroke volume variation. So, do you see cases where you have evidence of volume intolerance mainly on the venous side, but yet you get you know positive in a stroke volume variation assessment? Yes. And how frequently do you see it? Yeah. I I don't think I have the data yet to say how frequent. Maybe Dr. Murphy does. We, we see it all the time. So we, we now. Yeah, I guess that was one of the things I wanted to say. I wouldn't say that fluid intolerance uh, replaces line responsiveness. I think there are two separate measurements. So line responsiveness is telling you something about whether the stroke is going to increase the fluid bolus. These venous pressures are telling you something about how well the heart is pumping blood off the end organs. If they're not related. And the other thing that, by my experience, in doing both of them at the same time, the other thing is not related, which I'm sure agrees with, are B-lines and signs of right-sided venous congestion. So they're, they're sort of separate measures that are telling different things about what's being the case. I guess, how do you put it together? Get a patient, you know, who shows in the phone I don't totally agree with Rory's summary of the data, and I guess <laughs> I would say that uh, cervical patients are always minor in these and neurocerebral patients are, are small cohorts. And you're talking specifically about septic shock, not all sorts of other reasons that we get fluid. So under-resuscitated surgical patients who are going to big procedures can do poorly if they don't get enough fluid. So I wouldn't make a gross statements about fluid administration. But basically, if you're worried about um, venous congestion, so you're worried about an osteoporosis, you're worried about the liver, you're worried about the kidneys, you care more about those right-sided measures. If your lactate is four or five, you've got a lot of unresponsiveness, then you might be giving fluids. So you have to make a decision about whether you, whether you think the patient in front of you needs more oxygen delivery, or whether they are starting to have a negative effect from the fluid. I think it's likely that once you start having elevations in venous pressures that are, are affecting how blood is flowing back to the heart, you're creating more, more edema in whatever end organ it is and less perfusion. So that the more important metric will eventually probably be these measures of volume congestion. But in sort of highly um, at-risk surgical patients, I think there might be times where you're still getting fluid when you have some evidence of venous congestion. But when you start to see this venous congestion is when you start to think fluid could be hurting, not helping that patient. He wants more evidence that fluid's going to be helpful. Like... Yeah, no, I, I think that's essentially right. I think, um, you know, you've got these markers of harm and... I think you have to take them in clinical pictures. So you have a patient with um, ARDS from from um, influenza. They leak fluid all the time. They have B lines everywhere. Yes, it's not due to hydrostatic pressure, but you have increased capillary leak. The concept of giving that patient more fluid is only they're only going to leak it into their lungs. Um, 
I think the, the venous side, I think, is a little more cut and dry just because, like, you already have blood pooling on the, the right side of your system or the venous side. If you start giving more fluid, just more of it's going to pool over there. Yeah, it happens. You start to see it way earlier than you see changes in, in volume responsiveness. Um, and earlier than when you see TAPSI, right? TAPSI is a very light finding, decreases in your TAPSI. Most of these patients' TAPSIs are still normal, um, but they already have venous excess. Um, again, I don't think we know exactly yet. Um, but I think you just take them all into account and just make a clinical call. Where do you have any insight yet as to when to halt fluid removal based on these findings? I can tell you what I do. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, in the ED, when I'm seeing these patients, like if you just take a normal septic patient in the emergency department without any history of pulmonary hypertension or right heart failure, they're all decongested at first. And you start giving them fluid, and you'll just see if the portal vein's the easiest, right? You have a completely normal monophasic portal vein that starts to become phasic. Um, as soon as I see phasicity of the portal vein, I stop giving them fluid. Um, and then, you know, you'll have patients who come in with pulmonary hypertension or some other um, pre-morbid condition, which shows that they already have pulse tility, and I don't give them fluid at all. In fact, a lot of them I'll start to diurese immediately. In the ICU, honestly, I don't give fluid. I, like, so it's really hard to, in, in the medical ICU, it's really hard to actually give more fluid because they've already had a huge amount of aggressive resuscitation. So it's very rare that I actually give them more fluid despite what their, their venous ultrasound shows. That's because you're right? I mean, sure. you know, certainly people get sick intermittently all the time. Yes. That's when you would use your arterial side. So if your VTI is super low and you have a lot of variability and you're tachycardic, you're, you should, so I think you should stop removing fluid. So if you see a lot of variability in your arterial line, your patient's getting more tachycardic, you're probably decreasing perfusion. You probably have a low stroke volume and a high heart rate, and that is an underfill heart, and that's probably not good for any patient. I don't think you're going to use your venous side to tell you that. Right, if they're decompressed already, yeah. You can do harm by taking fluid. Yeah. It's finding that sweet spot really is the key in tailoring and approach. I mean, these are truly critically ill patients who change on a minute-by-minute basis, hour-by-hour. So, you know, there's no, you have to adapt to their kind of physiology. I think that point is understated in any paper or guidelines about uh, sepsis. You need to figure out a patient in front of you is burning fire, how you're asking the immediate cause of sepsis, or you've treated the immediate cause of sepsis, and now you're letting everything play out. You can't really study that. Right. I think that's so, so important, because I've actually, like, I've rarely seen someone who has true venous congestion on ultrasound drop their pressure at all when you start aggressively pulling fluid. If they really have congestion on the venous side, they just have so much venous excess it doesn't happen. The few times it is, then they end up getting sick again, right? So they actually, they have sepsis again, and you just didn't know it early on, and they started dropping their pressure, and then it turns out that they're septic, and it's not that the fact that you, uh, you're you over-diuresing them, you just don't have source control. That's a great talk. Oh, thank you. Um, any anecdote on the data see any difference in terms of crystalloid versus colloid versus blood? No, is the, is the short answer. Um, I don't know if you... Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think taking blood out of it, certainly the crystalloid versus colloid debate, I think, is, is for the most part a mute point. I think most of the data suggests they're essentially the same. When you actually go into these these physiologists that talk about the revised Starling equation, um, they do a pretty good explanation of why 
colloids have not panned out the way they said, and why in all the trials, the difference in the actual amount of volume given is much, much smaller than what you would expect if colloids were really staying in the circulation. It has to do with the glycohalix, which is basically the, pro the pro glycoprotein um, uh, tissue around the, 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 the um, vessels themselves, and what happens to the glycohalix during resuscitation and how colloids may damage it more or may not, and how instead of actually pulling fluid from the interstitium, you're actually just dehydrating the glycohalix with colloids. That's way above my pay grade. Um, but I don't think either one of them have much of an effect on, on the venous side. I think, I think there is something to be said. We do know that aggressive resuscitation damages the glycohalix, so you end up third-facing more fluid the more aggressively you resuscitate people. So it may not be simply that you're just increasing hydrostatic pressure or causing third-spacing. You might actually be just causing a cyclical process of the more fluid you give, the more fluid they leak, the more fluid you give, and you kind of spiral down. I have one more salt to say, which is we have two neurologists in the room, and I think that... Um, how these differences in flow affect the brain is a whole other thing. Yeah. Worthy of study. Yeah, agreed. Mm -hmm. Also, worthy of study is the factor of the degree of hypoglycemia in our patients. Uh, the kind of caveats of the hypoglycemic issue, as well as uh, in the, I think, again, everything needs to be given with a clear purpose in mind. We don't give pressures, we don't give sedation. I don't really know. It's all for goal-directed therapy in one form or another. And when the algorithm is given, I think it's, it's very goal-directed. You don't just give it to give it. Right? it and, but it's really, in my mind, is to, to actively be able to pull fluid so as to minimize the pressure requirements or whatever kind of and potential adversities that may exist with uh, the therapies. So, my I think overall, though, for the fellows that are graduating, to listen to your normal non-medical lives, you know, as you get out, um, you know, we, and traditionally we've been thinking about uh, arterial blood flow, and that's why this talk is so important in the way that you're thinking about this is so important the way we've done so like with uh, driving pressure with ARDS uh, whether uh, PRS artists work in changing map goals and setting septic shock and according to people with chronic uh, kidney disease you know maintaining a higher map uh, may benefit certain people that are probably chronically hypertensive and adjusting according to each person's on a regulatory curve. So it's really not so much just the arterial flow, it's really the relationship between pluses and minuses, you know, you know the, the flow plus the resistance to flow. And the gradient and maintaining a normal gradient is really important. Um, you know, pretty much regards cerebral perfusion pressure, I and mean, it's MAP minus intracranial pressure. You can increase the MAP, but if you're also you know increasing not addressing the criminal pressure, uh, you may not get the kind of um, results that you seek. The other issue in um, those you graduate, as your uh, financial influx improves, um, make sure your expenditures don't simultaneously <laughs> increase to match your uh, higher inflows. Um, exactly. <laughs> 
So um, <laughs> a little life lesson along the way. So thank you, Lord. Thanks, guys. Is that okay? That's perfect. Yeah.